0: Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. I want to start with an important announcement for those that do follow us live. Uh, Next week, uh, the regularly scheduled Bible study would fall on Wednesday the 19th of April. Uh, We're going to be switching that with our Tuesday night uh, phone prayer. So, Bible study next week will be Tuesday, the 18th of April. We'll have prayer on the phone uh, Wednesday, the 19th. Again, this is just for next week, and then after that we'll be back to our normal schedule. We are in Part 7 of this 12-part series, and we're trying to keep moving along with this, and we've come... If you're following along in the notes to page 121, and we want to jump right in here in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, and I'm not sure if we'll be able to do it, but my intention tonight is to finish this chapter, which would also mean we're going to finish with part 7. We'll see how far we're able to get, but again, we're on... Page one twenty one, and if you're following your Bibles, you want to open to Acts chapter twelve. The notes and recordings for all these are available at our website, new life ministries. org. Uh, you can also uh, listen live on uh, line and on the telephone. All right, here we go Acts twelve. I want to read the first five verses to open things up here. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the feast of unleavened bread after arresting him he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the passover so peter was kept in prison but the church was earnestly praying for god praying to god for him So, nothing new here, we've been tracing this throughout the book of Acts, Uh, those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a common denominator all throughout church history, all throughout the book of Acts, and even in modern church history as we are seeing almost daily in the news, Christian brethren of ours throughout the world, are suffering, losing their lives for the sake of Christ. This is serious business, and now we have our second named martyr. Certainly there were many other Christians that had already given up their lives for Christ by this point, but this is the second named one, a very significant one at that. Stephen, of course, we read about in Acts 7, and now... One of the original twelve apostles, James, the brother of the apostle John, remember they were the two sons of Zebedee, called nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, James has now been put to death by Herod. And here again, Satan just never lets up. He hates God, he hates Christ, he hates the church, he hates Christians. And he came to kill, steal, and to destroy. Nothing about him has changed in our modern world. He hates God, he hates Christians, he hates the church, and he continues to launch his relentless attacks on the church. This time, the persecution is originating from a Gentile king, but notice how he's doing this in an effort to please the Jews. And this is a strange dynamic that we'll see uh, several other times throughout the book of Acts. But of course, because of the Roman rule over the Jews at this time, uh, the rulers would sometimes do things to appease the, the Jews, and you can trace that all the way back to the crucifixion of Christ. But he is Herod Agrippa the First. if you're interested in any of the history. This is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Just because you see the name Herod uh, doesn't mean a whole lot because you have to trace... Uh, in the history and find out which Herod we're talking about this is actually Herod Agrippa I the grandson of Herod the Great so he arrested some others also we're told intending to persecute them and he had James the brother of John put to death with the sword now this King Herod was appointed over Judea by the Roman Emperor Claudius and he as I mentioned, was going to great lengths to try to please the Jews and so when he found out that this one pleased the Jews, then he was quite uh, happy to go ahead and arrest Peter also and we're told that because of the time of Passover, he wanted to wait until that was all over to bring him out for quote a public trial. That's a nice way of saying he was going to execute him also. This was just a mock trial and it wouldn't have been a real trial in any way, shape, or form. And Peter's destiny was already sealed. He was going to join the Apostle James as soon as Passover came to an end. Now James's death, most historians place at about 10 years, give or take a few years, after Christ's death and resurrection. So approximately 10 years, maybe even a few more, have taken place already in the early church in Jerusalem when this takes place. And notice again the way the Jews reacted to this event. They responded very enthusiastically. This pleased them very much that Herod had put James to death, so he's all the more encouraged to do the same with Peter. Now, some interesting details that Luke gives us here, Peter was in prison, that's enough to usually keep a prisoner safe, but obviously word had already gotten around that some of these guys, even when they get locked up, angels come and unlock the prison and let them out. So this time they're going to be extra careful, and Peter is actually being guarded by 16 soldiers. (laughs) I mean, you have to think about that. Sixteen armed guards are surrounding Peter's cell to make absolutely sure nothing happens to this guy. So, as I mentioned, uh, essentially, Peter is just counting down the days until his execution. Now, we read in verse 5 a very important detail that we're not told concerning James. It says, the church was earnestly praying to God for him, meaning for Peter. By no coincidence, James and Peter, both apostles, both servants of the same God, disciples of the same Jesus Christ, would meet two very different fates at the hand of King Herod. One would die, and one would be miraculously rescued, even though it was certainly Herod's intention to execute both of them. And I think this is a very important piece of Scripture for us to meditate, because a lot of questions often arise, particularly when Christians face tragedies when they go through strange trials, as Peter calls them in his epistle. Things that we really can't explain. In other words, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Here's a here's a good man. I mean, he's an apostle. An apostle is put to death. And another apostle is put in the same prison, by the same evil king, and his end is going to be very different. The inevitable question is, why? Well, I have only one answer. And the answer is found in Ephesians one nine. Here Paul makes reference to something that you and I need to study very carefully. He refers to the mystery of of God's will. The mystery of God's will. If you and I think we have God's will figured out, then we're deceived. Because it's a mystery. It's so deep, so profound, so unsearchable, we can't second guess God. We can't criticize God for His actions. We just simply have to accept them with the premise that God is all-wise, He's all-knowing, He knows a whole lot more than I know, and I dare not question His will. And so, I believe that here in Acts 12, in all in one single chapter, we are confronted head-on with this mystery, the mystery of God's will and the fact that we simply cannot comprehend God's ways. The Bible states that. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God tells us, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In our human arrogance, how dare we question a sovereign, loving, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God? To put it another way, Paul says, how dare the clay question the potter? God is sovereign, and, and I love that attribute of God. I find that as I grow older in life and years advance in my Christian walk, I've come to appreciate that attribute of God more and more. God is sovereign. Putting it very simply, He does whatever He wants. He's governed not by our laws or rules. He's governed by His own law, by His own rules. And He is holy, holy, holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. There's absolutely nothing wrong with Him. There's no defect in Him. So He cannot possibly do wrong. And so, whenever God does something, rather than question and criticize and fuss and holler, we do well to fall on our faces, humble ourselves, Lift up our hands to heaven and worship the sovereign God. Psalm five six says, The Lord does whatever pleases Him, in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Sure, there's a devil. The world is fallen. The world is under the control of the evil one. But the evil one is under the control of almighty god and what a what a horrifying thing it would be if our god didn't have all power and all authority and we were to somehow have to admit well sometimes you know satan gets the upper hand and he can go against god's will what foolishness god has all power all authority. He is sovereign. He rules over all. That's what the word means. So, whenever God does something strange, like allow James to be put to death, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but allow Peter to live and to be miraculously rescued, we have to question, hmm, this doesn't seem fair on the surface. James seems to have gotten a raw deal and Peter got a much better deal. Well, we're going down the wrong road there. Better just to humble ourselves and say, God, you are all wise. You did perfectly here, even though we may not be able to understand it. We praise you for the mystery of your will. Bible says he is the rock and His works are perfect. Just and right is He. He's without iniquity. God doesn't do anything wrong. And so, I made up my mind years ago, no matter what happens, no matter what I see, I'm just going to operate on the premise that God is right all the time. I don't understand what's going on right now but I worship God and I praise Him because He is sovereign. In the Scriptures, whenever it talks about a mystery, as we just commented here, the mystery of God's will, it doesn't mean, you know, it's something we have to uh, solve like a murder mystery. This is something hidden from our view God is the one who hid it, and it's up to Him when and if He wants to reveal it to us. It's something that must be revealed, not figured out or analyzed. And so, the mystery of God's will, quite simply, is we're not always going to understand what God is doing. Paul puts it very beautifully in Romans 11, verses 33 and 34. I'm reading from the New King James. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Okay? The depth of his wisdom, the depth of his knowledge. How deep are they? Well, they're unsearchable. How unsearchable are his judgments, and I like this, his ways past finding out. Good luck trying to figure out God's ways, Paul says. You can't do it. They're past finding out. They're past searching. You'll never analyze, figure out, or search it out. And then he quotes from Isaiah. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has become His counselor? It's a very poor analogy, but sometimes it helps me just a little bit to put myself in proper perspective with God. When you're walking down the street, and there's a little ant crossing the sidewalk, how well does that ant understand your mind. Well, it's incomprehensible for him. He can't even begin to know what I'm thinking about, the memories I have, the intellect, the knowledge that is stored, the wisdom that I've accumulated. That little ant is oblivious to my mind. Well, that's the kind of a gulf that exists between us and God. That's what Isaiah 55 is talking about. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And now, with the Hubble telescope and other modern astronomical gizmos and gadgets, we're understanding more and more just how much higher the heavens are than the earth. Millions of light years higher. It's not even close. No way we can jump across that gap. So, better to, like Paul is doing here in Romans 11, just fall on our faces and worship God and say, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and his ways past finding out. I can't explain why God allowed James to be put to death, and he's going to spare Peter. I I don't even presume to understand why. God knows why. And I'll tell you one thing for sure, he did it for a purpose. God never does anything whimsically, accidentally or chaotically. God always has a purpose. He's a purposeful God. And whether or not we understand the purpose, we must accept whatever comes from His hand. Now, verse 5 again says, The church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. Prayer is a fascinating mystery in itself. Because, if God is sovereign, and He already has everything planned out, why would He even tell us to pray? And here is the great mystery of prayer. When we pray, we connect with the sovereign God. And one servant of God has likened prayer to coming into the circle of God's sovereignty. We, we somehow actually join in with the sovereign God as we're praying. I can't explain it, but I know God answers prayer. And I also know sometimes God doesn't seem to, quote, answer my prayers. God doesn't always do what we want him to do. Now, we're told in 1 John 5, when we pray according to God's will, we have confidence that he's heard us. If we know he's heard us, we know he's already answered us. He's going to do what he already promised to do in his will and in his word. God doesn't always seem to, quote, answer prayer the way we expected. However, he always hears us. And after James's execution, the church is now earnestly praying for Peter. As I said earlier, there's no mention in Luke's account of any prayer being offered for James. Maybe there wasn't even any time to do that. We don't know the timeline between when he was arrested and when he was executed, but there's nothing said about the church praying for James, But, and this is just speculation, but it's possible that the church had become a little bit apathetic, a little complacent, a little lazy, maybe they'd started to fall asleep a little bit, but I guarantee you after one of the original apostles was put to death, that was a wake-up call. And I think the church got so stirred when they heard that Peter was now in prison, they began to cry out to God with some serious prayer, Lord, don't let another one of our apostles be taken from us. And again, this is speculation. But sometimes I've seen God... Allow trouble, tragedy to stir us up out of our slumber and our complacency. Whatever the case may be, prayer is now introduced into the equation. It makes it even more complicated. We have the mystery of God's will. Now we have the mystery of prayer and the praying church interacting with the all-wise, all-knowing God. We pick it up in verse 6, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 19. We ended in verse 5 with the church earnestly praying. doesn't say casually praying, earnestly praying. We'll see how earnestly they were praying in a minute. I believe they were praying all night. Because it says in verse 6, The night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping. I love that. The night before he's to go to trial. Let me help you translate that. Basically what it's saying, the night before Peter's execution. This was not going to be any real trial. It would be a public mockery and he would be put to death just like James. What's Peter doing? He's sleeping. Sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentry stood guard at the entrance. Man, they're going to make sure nothing happens the night before this guy's trial slash execution suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Now pay close attention to this. The appearance of the angel and even the light that shines in the cell from the angel doesn't wake Peter up. He's in a deep, deep sleep. So deep, the angel has to strike him. The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. (coughs) And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, It must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, Peter said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So, this is the very night before Peter's trial and very likely his execution. And I don't know what Peter was thinking that night before he fell asleep. Um, he seems to have a peace that passes understanding. Any understanding would tell us he should be up, fidgeting, pacing back and forth in his cell, for this is really his last night in the land of the living. But instead, like Christ in the boat in the middle of the storm, sleeping, here's Peter in the middle of his storm, sound asleep. Perhaps Peter remembered the promise that Jesus gave him, recorded in John 21, 18, that he was going to live to be an old man. I don't know if that came to his mind or not, but it might have. That, wait a minute, Jesus said, I'm going to live to be old. I'm not going to die yet. Let me go Have a nice sleep tonight. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but my God can do anything. Peter had already seen angels. He had already seen how God can open prison doors. This was nothing too hard for the Lord. And I say this to myself and to all of us regularly. We have to stop putting little boxes around God. Stop limiting God. God can do anything He can open prison doors. He can blind prison guards. He can do anything. And supernaturally, Peter is rescued. And again, I want to come back to this a little later. I I had a hard time with this when I first began to study this. Lord, why didn't you rescue James? Surely he could have. God loved James just as much as He loved Peter. God needed James as much as He needed Peter in this early church. He needs every apostle He can possibly get. Why didn't He send an angel and rescue James? Again, we don't know the answer. But God does, and God did it for a reason. Now, the angel of the Lord that miraculously sets Peter free from prison. It's kind of interesting. Remember, in Acts 10, Peter had a vision, and this time he thinks he's having another vision. Verse 9, Peter thought he was seeing a vision. Finally, he really wakes up and he realizes, man, this is no vision. This is a real angel here. And I'm not dreaming this. This is really happening. Verse 12, it said, When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. We usually call him John Mark. Where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, a couple of details I point out here. This was the middle of the night. And I would maintain these folks are having an all-night prayer meeting. And there's not one or two. It says, many people had gathered and were praying. Let me tell you something, when a bunch of Christians get together and pray, God is listening. God is paying attention. And they were earnestly praying, we read in verse 5. And part of their earnestness is seen in the fact that they're here in an all-night prayer meeting, the night before Peter's trial. And instinctively, as Peter is released from prison, he goes straight to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who, by the way, is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to see a lot more of John Mark in the coming chapters of the book of Acts. So Peter goes to the house, it's the middle of the night. He's knocking on the door, and the servant girl comes to the door. She recognizes that it's Peter. She's so overjoyed, she runs back into the prayer meeting without opening the door. Now, why are they gathered for prayer? They're praying for Peter, they're praying for his release, they're praying for his safety. The answer to their prayer has come to the door. <laughs> The answer to their prayer is knocking on the door, and they won't let him in. The girl was so excited, she forgets to let Peter in. Then she goes and tells everybody, Hey man, you can stop praying. Your prayers have been answered. Peter's here. He's at the front door. And they all thought she was crazy. They dismissed her saying, Um... Sorry, Rhoda, but that can't possibly be Peter. It must be his angel. Can't possibly be Peter. Wait a minute. I thought we were praying for Peter to be released. How can you say it can't be Peter? And I don't want to come down too hard on these early Christians, because we do the same thing all the time. I do it. We pray, pray, pray for something and honestly, in our heart of hearts if we're honest, we don't really believe it's going to happen and then when it happens, we're so shocked we can't believe it. And even when the answer is there right in front of our face we're still like, eh, I don't know this can't possibly be, I think the doctor must be mistaken I'm sure I still have cancer even though He's standing here with a new report that says all the cancer is gone. He must be wrong. No, he's right. You prayed, God answered the prayer, here's the proof. They all thought this girl was crazy. They said, basically, this can't possibly be Peter. He's still in prison. How familiar is this scene, and how often it's repeated in Christian circles. We pray, we pray, we pray. The prayers are answered, and then we're totally surprised when God answers the prayer, and we can't even believe it when the answer has come. And <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know any way to put this nicely. Um, I just wrote here in the notes: God, in His mercy, answers our faithless prayers. Faithless? Yes, that's right. Sometimes we pray, we don't even have any faith, but God in His mercy answers them anyway. When we had so little faith, we couldn't even believe when the answer comes. That's some pretty serious unbelief, but I have seen that even with my little bit of faith, God helps me. God is merciful. God works with me. Like that man in the gospel, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He will. If we want to be believers, he'll help us to become believers. But quite frankly, often we're praying in unbelief, and even when the answer shows up, we don't believe it. Anyway, when they finally let Peter into the house, and realize, my gracious, the Lord did a miracle here he miraculously sent his angel and delivered Peter out of prison. Verse 16 says they were all astonished. They were astonished. They were amazed. And that's okay. It's okay to be amazed when God shows up and does a miracle. And after Peter gives the whole testimony of the angel and his miraculous rescue, he tells them go tell James and the brothers about this. Now let me be very clear here. Peter knew that James the apostle, the brother of John had been executed. He's not Confused, thinking that that James is still alive. This is a different James. Okay, So when he says, go tell James and the brothers about what had happened, he's referring to James, the Lord's brother. This is the same James we're going to see later on in the book of Acts. In Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, he was a leader, also in the Jerusalem church. And it's actually uh, the half-brother of Jesus, referred to as the Lord's brother. So that's the James Peter mentions here. And very casually, uh, all that's recorded here is Peter's words, tell James and the brothers about this, and he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers. Remember, there were 16 soldiers guarding this one man. And somehow he still escapes. No small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod cross-examined everybody, he had all the soldiers put to death. Now, in Acts twelve nineteen to twenty five, we read the ending of the story for Herod. This was a very grievous thing Herod did. Putting one of the Lord's apostles to death. Very, very serious matter. And We're going to see consequences on this one. Acts 12, 19-25. Then Herod, I'm sure he wasn't the least bit bothered in his conscience about anything he had done. Then Herod went from Judea. By the way, he's now put James to death and at least 16 of his own soldiers to death. He doesn't care. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now, as we've noted, we we kind of keep jumping all over the place. We go from Peter to Saul, back to Peter, to Barnabas and Saul, back to Peter, and now we shift, finally in this verse 25, back to Barnabas and Saul. Which is important because we're again almost done with Peter, and we're going to switch back, almost permanently now, to Saul, a.k.a. Paul, and Barnabas. But, Let's first deal with this. Here's Herod on his throne in his royal robes delivering a public address. And it must have been a good speech. And they're all clapping and applauding. This is the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod in his pride and arrogance is just sitting there on the throne drinking it in not giving any of the praise or glory to God. And it says, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Now the backdrop here is given. There was some kind of trouble brewing between King Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they've requested this meeting with him. He shows up in all of his royal... Finery gives the speech and they're all shouting praises to him. Now, specifically it seems to indicate that because he didn't give the glory to God the angel of the Lord struck him down. Make no mistake that was part of it but this was a very grievous thing he had done to James the Apostle. And you know I really like the Apostle John. Um, I think a lot of people are very fond of him. He was the disciple Jesus loved. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three uh, epistles, John 1, 2, and 3, and even the Book of Revelation. Very important man in the New Testament. This was his brother that was executed. and You can imagine what that would have done to John's heart. But imagine what it has done to God's heart. And this scripture is not in your notes, but it's a very important one that I should have included. Psalm one o five fifteen. the Lord warns, don't touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Don't touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Well, Not only had Herod harmed one of his anointed ones, one of his prophets or apostles, he had him executed. And Galatians 6 verse 7 I think sums it up as clearly as can be. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Some seeds spring up quickly. Some take a long time to germinate, sprout, and mature. In any event, there's always a reaping for what has been sown. And no doubt, Herod is now reaping. He's paying for what he had done. And the one who arrogantly thought he had all power to kill anybody he wanted to kill. He failed to learn the lesson of history. He could have learned a lot had he read the Bible, particularly had he read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who, of course, had burned Jerusalem to the ground and no doubt executed many, many Jews as well as other people. But in Daniel 5... 19 and 20. Here's what we read about him. Because of the high position, God gave him. This is the position Almighty God gave Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, all authority comes from God. So, whether you're Hitler, Caesar, Nebuchadnezzar, or Herod, God gave you that authority. Because of the high position, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Certainly, if you were a soldier for King Herod, you'd be walking on eggshells after finding out what happened to those poor 16 soldiers that were executed. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Herod had killed one of the Lord's apostles and now he is slain by the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Luke twelve, four and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear Him who after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. And Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. Remember, vengeance is not ours, but it is the Lord's. Oh, you better believe, God is a vengeful God. He will get even with all of his foes, he will one day repay all evil. That's not our business. Vengeance is the Lord's. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, King Herod fell into the hands of a living God that day, and it was dreadful. He was smitten, struck dead, and the Bible's very graphic, eaten of worms, and died. Eaten of worms first, and then died. We're not talking about maggots eating up the flesh after he died. He was smitten with some kind of a plague of worms eating up his flesh even before he died. How horrible. But, Verse 24, the Word of God continued to increase and spread. Here again, Luke is giving us one of his frequent progress reports of how the church is advancing despite martyrs, persecution, tribulation, trouble, opposition. The Word of God is not bound. The Word of God keeps increasing, spreading, spreading and growing. And I would maintain, based on the book of Acts and church history, one of the great fertilizers that brings church growth is indeed persecution. Persecution. The church was being persecuted, but the Word of God was increasing and spreading. Here again we see the same pattern. Revival, Opposition, persecution, and then more growth. How it must infuriate the devil. How it angered the devil as this kept happening over and over in the book of Acts. And persecution has never put out the flames of revival. Just the opposite. It stokes the fire and spreads it further and further and further. Uh, We were looking at a video online recently of some of our Chinese brothers, Chinese Christians, underground Christians in China. The things these people do to worship God puts all of us to shame. One of the videos was of a large group of Christians meeting, no, not in an air-conditioned church with cushioned pews and carpeted floors and altars. They were in a cave. Okay, that's all right. They were meeting in a cave that was 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Most of us wouldn't be able to stand that for five minutes. They were in there for 12 hours, non-stop, praying, praying, singing, rejoicing in the Lord, listening to the word of God, the preacher that was invited, who remained anonymous, and actually, I kind of fear for some of the people in this video, because if the Chinese authorities can recognize their faces, they're in big trouble. But in any event, the preacher who was invited to this cave, they told him, come at 7.30 in the morning, that's when our service starts. So he got there at 7.30, and he asked them, "Uh, how long would you like for me to preach? They said, you preach until 6 p.m., 7.30 a.m. till 6 p.m. at night, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. He said, how often do you all take breaks? They said, we don't. You just go nonstop until 6 p.m. He finished that first day, Completely drained and sweated out and exhausted. And they came to him and said, Please, sir, can you come again tomorrow morning and preach for us again? Yes, he came back the next morning, came back a third day, preached nonstop, three 12 hour sessions. They don't have Bibles. They wanted to hear the Word of God, they were hungry to hear the Word of God. No, persecution doesn't stop the church it sets it on fire these Christians are on fire for Jesus raising their hands in 120 degree heat tears streaming down their faces as they're singing to the Jesus that died for them on the cross oh may God wake us up may God stir us up when this wave of persecution finished the word of god continued to increase and spread then suddenly our attention is turned back to barnabas and saul because the story's about to shift again verse 25 said when barnabas and saul had finished their mission remember in chapter 11 they were sent with a financial gift for The brethren in Jerusalem, because of Agabus' prophecy that they were going to have a famine, they collected an offering from the Antioch church, sent it to Jerusalem in the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they're now returning to Antioch from Jerusalem, and every detail here is critical, uh, because we're going to get into this next time when we start off in chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission. They returned from Jerusalem to Antioch, taking with them John, also called Mark. Very important character in the next chapter. So, they finished delivering the money to Jerusalem. They're bringing back John Mark, who by the way, is the nephew of Barnabas. We'll get into all this next time, but it's interesting to start to see the whole picture here. So, John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, the nephew of Barnabas, is now coming back to Antioch with Barnabas and Saul. It is impossible to know whether Barnabas and Saul were actually still in Jerusalem at the time of James' death and the imprisonment of Peter. We just don't know the exact timing of all this. It, of course, would be very interesting if they were, but we can't prove that from the Scriptures. Alright, we did it. We're going to finish Part 7 tonight, so we're all set next week to dive right into part 8 with Acts chapter 13. Let's bring this seventh part to a conclusion. We've covered a lot in part 7 which spans Acts 10, 11, and 12. This, of course, is where the gospel is first taken to the Gentiles. Peter takes the gospel to the household of Cornelius. Uh, Very difficult initially, even for Peter to accept, not to mention the Jewish believers. Uh, It was very hard initially for them to understand or to accept the sweeping changes that God was bringing about. This was a whole new dispensation. The dispensation of the law has come to an end now. The dispensation of grace, the uh, inauguration of the kingdom, the new covenant has begun, and grace is being extended, not just to Jews, but to the Gentile world. They were slow. It took at least ten years, maybe longer, for them to accept the Revelation and the reality that God was breaking down the middle wall between Jew and Gentile and now making them one in Christ, giving all of them the same access by faith into God's grace and God's salvation. After Peter went to the house of Cornelius, the Holy Spirit fell there, and revival broke out. Before you know it, people are going as far as Antioch, Syria, preaching the gospel. People are getting saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. And a revival, that's the word used, a revival breaks out in Antioch. And one of the most significant developments in this portion of Acts that takes place is the establishment Of the Antioch Church. It's going to be key in the coming chapters. It would be the headquarters for all of the outreach into the Gentile world. It would serve as the headquarters for the Apostle Paul and other apostles who would be going out with him on his uh, missionary or outreach journeys. So, a lot of significant developments took place in Acts 10, 11, and 12. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. The Antioch church is established and in full-blown revival. Persecution continues to break out, even resulting in the death of the second named martyr in the church, James the Apostle, the brother of John, the arrest of Peter, and his miraculous rescue by the angel. Many Bible commentators actually believe that at the close of Acts 12, it's the end of what they call Volume 1 of Acts. And they believe that Acts 13 to 28 is actually Volume 2. There is a pretty significant <clears throat> break between chapter 12 and chapter 13, as I mentioned, focus now shifts from Peter back to Barnabas and Saul, and especially on to Paul, for essentially the rest of the book of Acts. We will see Peter only one more time in Acts 15, and that's in the Jerusalem Council, when they gather together to discuss the problem of law versus grace, but essentially, we're finished now with Peter. That whole portion of Acts comes to a close, and if you will, we're about to begin Volume 2, which is basically the ongoing outreach and extension of the Gospel further and further into the Gentile world, particularly at the hands of Paul. Much more next time as we embark on part eight of this 12-part series. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Lord, it is so rich, so unsearchable, the treasures the riches of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. We pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Christ better, to be able to dig deeper and deeper into Your Word, to understand the mysteries that are hidden there. And, O oh God, even tonight we've talked about the mystery of Your will. There are so many things we don't understand, but one thing we do acknowledge as being true you are sovereign, you are good, you are upright, and you are holy. You never do anything wrong. Everything that you do is governed by your truth and by your righteousness. And so, even when we see things that we don't understand or they don't seem just or fair or right, help us to remember, O God, that you know what's best. And help us to reserve any questions or judgments or criticisms till we reach the other side. Oh God, because your ways are past finding out. Your wisdom, your knowledge, your understanding is beyond our comprehension. Father, we praise you. That we can walk with and serve the only wise God. We entrust ourselves to your care, to your protection. We pray, O oh God, that the church would continue to be on fire, continue to grow, that the Word of God would increase and spread as it was in the early church. We are praying for revival in our churches. In these last days thank you for stirring us up thank you for giving us boldness to speak your word boldly and clearly in these last days knowing you will stand with us you will be with us you will never leave us you will never forsake us Lord bless each and every one that's joined us in this Bible study tonight keep them by your grace and power Lord Bless them, keep them, make your face shine upon them and be gracious to them. Turn your face toward them and give them